welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. We are going through the book of James. Today is the last one this year. We're going to look at chapter 4, part of it this morning, and then we'll pause for Christmas services, and then we'll pick this back up after the first of the year. It's hard to believe that it is already December, and we're already there. I want to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but He gives more grace? Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But you, if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge one another? Between two farms in near Valley View, Alberta, Canada, are two parallel fences two feet apart for a half mile. Two fences. You see, Paul and Oscar, two farmers, had a big disagreement, and it worked into a feud. Paul wanted to build a fence between the property, and he wanted Oscar to help him pay for it since it was a, both of them would benefit from it. But Oscar was unwilling to give any money to help, and since Paul wanted to keep his cattle on his land, he built a fence half mile long, dividing that property. When Oscar saw the fence, he came up and said, well, I see we have a fence. And Paul said, what do you mean we? I had my land surveyed, and I built this fence two feet into my land which means I have land on both sides of the fence. And if any of your cows are ever on my land, I'm going to shoot with them. Well, after a while, Oscar wanted to use that pasture that was adjacent to Paul, and he knew Paul meant it, so Oscar built a fence on his property line. Paul and Oscar are both gone today, but that half-mile parallel fence, two feet apart, 
is a monument to stubbornness. Conflict is a real problem in our world. In fact, are you aware that in the 5,600 years of recorded history, there have been 15,000 wars? Enough for three wars for every year of history. And war is a reality of life. And conflict among people is a reality. And did you know it can even come into the church? In fact, if you want to learn how to love, find Jesus. If you want to learn how to fight, go to church. (laughs) There's a small country church in Missouri named New Garden Baptist Church, a primitive Baptist church that years ago... um, Typical. I mean, the little white building out in the country, cemetery next to it, gravel parking lot, picnic table under the tree. You can picture it. Had a cemetery next to it. They got into a squabble about who was going to take care of the cemetery, and so it eventually caused a split in the church. And the people who left the church bought the property on the other side of the cemetery and built a building very similar to the one they had just had. And they named their church the New New Garden Baptist Church. I'm not making this up. You can't make this stuff up. The old church didn't like that, and they wanted to be distinguished between the new church, so they renamed their church the Old New Garden Baptist Church. And so they operated a hundred yards from one another, separated by cemetery. I have a hunch that the only thing growing in that cemetery, in that community, was the cemetery. And sometimes you hear people say, well, you know, there's so much strife in the church today. We need to get back to the first century and, and worship like the new Christians did. Oh, really? You see, this was a new church. In Jerusalem, these were new believers coming out of Judaism, and James knew all about conflict. In fact, Josephus, the historian, records that James, as was pastor of this large new church in Jerusalem, later on there were people that came into the church and wanted to get rid of James because they didn't want him teaching about Jesus. It caused a riot, and some men grabbed hold of the pastor, took him up on top of the building, and threw him off. James, the half-brother of Jesus. He didn't kill him, so they went down and stoned him to death. Josephus records that while he was being stoned, he was praying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, I want you to know that when the day comes you're ready for me to go, you do not have to throw me off the building. I'm smart enough to know and take the hint. But I also want you to know that the conflict we're reading about here, it doesn't matter how long the church has been in existence, there's always been conflict in it. And the most passionate part of the book of James is right here in the first 12 verses of chapter 4. He's just talked about the wisdom from God in chapter 3, and now he talks about what I'm going to call self-centered Christianity. Because I can promise you, anytime there is a fight, it's because somebody has been self-centered. He's already covered the doctrinal issue. If it's not a doctrinal issue you're, you're fighting over, it's over something 
silly. The first thing you'll notice is the picture of self-centered Christianity. And trust me, it is not very photogenic. It's an ugly picture. You ever had any pictures you didn't like? You say, well, I'm not very photogenic. That's why they can touch it up and make you look better than you really are. Y'all ever done that? Yeah, you do. Some of the pictures you send to us for our records here at the church were you in high school. (laughs) But I want you to notice in this picture you see several ugly things. You see, first of all, a struggle for power. He says, where do wars and fights come among you? Where are the feuds, the Christian, uh, the conflicts in the Christian community? The word war means chronic or long-lasting hostility. It's a power struggle, almost like the Hatfields and McCoys, that famous feud. And the word fighting means a single encounter, and an outburst, a volcanic eruption, a, a skirmish that, re- that comes from a long-standing feud. Where'd that come from, he says? James blamed it on the passions that are within inside of us, within us. He said they come from in you, on the inside. It's sad that the unbelieving world and that we live in is far more familiar with church fights or business meetings than it is for the Christ-like concern that that church should have for the community. It kind of spreads like wildfire. Now, I want you to know I'm grateful that we don't have any of that going on right now that I know of. But I've been in smaller communities where this was just sort of the rule of the day. Years ago, there was a large statue of Christ that was erected high in the Andes Mountains right on the border of Argentina and Chile. And as the statue symbolized a pledge between the two countries that as long as the statue stands, there will be peace between Chile and Argentina. So they erected this huge statue of Christ. But shortly after the statue was erected, the Chileans began to protest because they'd been slighted because the statue of Christ had its back turned to Chile. Just when tempers were at their highest, a Chilean newspaper editor saved the day in his editorial when he said, the statue of Christ faces Argentina because the people of Argentina need more watching over than the people of Chile. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever been in one of these churches where there was a struggle for power. It's not a pretty picture. You also see the selfish pleasures mentioned here. He said, where did this come from? It wars with inside the desires and lusts that you have for pleasure. It's from the inside. And and the way it says the war in your members, it basically states you are a walking civil war. You are at odds with yourself. You're miserable on the inside. For more than 20 years, Professor Edwin Keedy of the University of Pennsylvania Law School started his first class in the semester by putting two numbers on the board, a two and a four. And then he said, what's the answer? Somebody immediately said, it's two, four minus two. Somebody said, no, it's six, two plus four. Some said, no, it's eight, two times four. Dr. Keedy, Professor Keedy He said, all of you failed. All of you failed to ask the key question, what is the problem? 
Unless you know what the problem is, you can't find the answer. I can tell you that when there's a skirmish, not over doctrine, when there's a skirmish someplace in a congregation, somebody is troubled on the inside. It's not pretty. Most of the time it's selfish. I, I kid with you a lot about your chairs. <laughs> if I can keep you laughing about it, maybe you'll know I'm serious. <laughs> I've seen more squabbles over a seat. And I've told you before, I hadn't told you in a long time, if you own that seat you're in, take it with you. We don't want to store your furniture here. Selfish pleasures. Most of the time, some kind of skirmish is something somebody didn't get their way or they didn't get what they wanted. The third part of this picture is selfish passion. Verse 2 says you lust. You have something that you really want in your heart or you covet. You do not have to be moved with envy. And it brings contention. Proverbs 13.10 says by pride comes only contention. Stan Mitica, a professional hockey star, used to get into a lot of fights during games. He finally stopped fighting when his eight-year-old daughter said, Dad, how can you score goals when you're always in the penalty box? It's true, isn't it? It's amazing how selfish we get. It reminds me of a man who was very faithful to a certain restaurant. He was there just about every week, two or three times a week. And so the owner of the restaurant always wanted to make sure he was a happy man. Well, one day this man who was in the restaurant told the owner, he said, you know, I really do like bread and you only give me one slice of bread every time. No problem. He had the waiter bring him four slices of bread. He said, is that better? The next time he came in, he gave him four slices. He said, yeah, it's good, but I really do like bread. You've only given me six. Aren't you still being a little frugal? And so finally the owner decided he's going to end this for good. The next night, he had a colossal loaf of baked bread. It was six feet long, three feet wide, it took the manager and two waiters to bring it to the complainer's table, and when they laid it on the table, it took up five place settings. They stood there and smiled, just couldn't wait for his reaction, and he said, so we're back to one piece again, huh? <laughs> I know people like that, don't you? Selfish. He also mentions their prayerlessness. He said, you don't have because you don't ask. I want to get it from somebody. You don't ever ask the Lord for it. You're just going to get it from someone else. Well, selfishness leads to strife and fighting. I want it my way. And folks, you need to realize that what we really want is for God's kingdom to be blessed and for God's way to happen. And sometimes we start something without thinking. There's an old saying, a bulldog can beat a skunk any day, but it's just not worth it. There's something you can quote. <laughs> it's not a pretty picture, is it? 
he goes on to show the prayer of self-serving Christianity. He says you, you don't have, or, or then you ask and you don't get it because you simply want it for purely selfish reasons. Ask amiss. That word ask amiss means your prayer is diseased. It's sick. And the word pleasures, hedone, hedone, we get a word hedonism from, describes our motives. We, we want this simply because I want it. Now, sometimes we ask for the right thing with the wrong motive. God does not answer when one intends to squander the answer strictly on your own personal lust or selfish desires or a mere acquisition of material gain. Well, preacher, if I win the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes, or if I win the lottery, I just want you to know I'm going to start tithing. <laughs> you really think God's going to let you win to start tithing? Don't waste your breath. If you don't honor the Lord now with what he's given you, what makes you think he's going to? First of all, he's not going to let you win the lottery. Gambling is poor stewardship. If God's loaned you stuff, well, that's a whole other sermon. i got to stop right there on that. Just trust me. 1 John 5, 14, though, is a contrast to this. Right across the page there. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. You see, self-centered Christians pray like they live. Give me, give me, give me, give me. Give me, give me, give me. That's how we pray when you're self-centered. James mentions the paradox of self-seeking Christianity. He said, this is so opposite of what Jesus has done in your life. In fact, this is the most passionate part. He calls them adulterers. Man, what a, what a, he reaches sort of an emotional peak. He probably capitalized that whole letter. I mean, that whole word. Adultery, when a man or a woman goes to someone else besides who they're married to for love and support. Israel played the harlot, played this with God. God said, you're my chosen people. I, will, I have a covenant with you, and yet they would go to other gods. And, and now James is saying, you follow Jesus. You've committed your life to Jesus, and now you are kissing the world is a literal translation. The world now is not nature. It's the philosophy against God or philosophy without God. And we live in the world system which says we don't need God. We can redefine everything that supposedly God said, said in his word. He didn't supposedly say it. That's what they say. We know. They redefine what sin is. And then he said, don't you know that friendship with the world? And that word friendship means to embrace, have affection for something, to kiss it. How many of you would kiss a rattlesnake? If you count putting your heel on the head, I, I kiss them all the time. I've, seen, I've, I've killed several this year. Not in the building, I just want you to know. <laughs> so I want to make that clear. <laughs> 
even though it would be exciting if you let one loose in a service. He's saying, you cannot say that you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul and strength and kiss the philosophy of the world. That's about as bluntly as it's said right there. And yet, we have so many in the world today that say they follow Jesus and live like they don't know Jesus. The church today, not, not South Chris necessarily, we, we always have to be on guard. But there are so many churches today that all they think is the more like the world we can be, the more people will come. And then they never share the gospel. When you have discord in the fellowship, when there's empty lives, untamed tongues, you can rest assured there's friendship with the world somewhere. But thank the Lord he gives the prescription for self-denying Christianity. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. <laughs> it means to be generous and effective. To, it's sufficient. He gives more grace. And then he says, God resists the proud. The proud means to lift yourself up against God, to, to show yourself better than others. And the word resist means he sets his face against the proud. I can remember, not here, but in days gone by at former churches, people have said to me, a preacher, if I were to leave, this church would close its doors. And what they meant was that they gave a lot of money to the church. I knew what they meant. I've got news for you. Church doesn't belong to anybody in here. It's going to go on whether you and I are here or not. And I also want you to know that is as proud a statement as you'll ever make. In fact, it reminds me of Nicodemus, not Nicodemus, Nebuchadnezzar. Or as one little boy said, Nebuch had a razor. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, king of Babylon, listen to what he says. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven said, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And he later in that same chapter is out eating grass like an ox. He's lost his mind. Let me tell you something. You and I are fortunate that God lets us be part of his work. Don't you ever for a moment think, God couldn't make it without me. Can you think of anything more arrogant than that? 
It says that God gives grace to the humble. The humble doesn't mean you're a doormat and doesn't mean everybody walks on you. The humble means, God, I can't believe you even let me do this. Instead of, I'm just too good to be true. You're so fortunate I'm on your side. Boy, I've met church people like that. I want to tell you, there's a difference in church people and Christians. Christians love the church. They love God's people. But church people don't love Jesus, and they're all about themselves. They either come for, for selfish reasons. I need to make some business contacts. I need to do this. W.T. Connor insisted that the deepest repentance of the Christian life comes after our conversion because the, we begin, the older we get, we begin to peel layers back like an onion, and we, the deeper we get, the more we realize, why did God pick me in the first place? Why does he even let me do what I do? So what's the prescription? First of all, submit to the Lord. The word submit means to place yourself under rank. It's a military word. Voluntary willingness to align yourself under the authority of someone else. You're saying, God, I want you to be the authority in my home, in my business, with my money, with my pleasure, with everything I do. God, you own me. Second thing is to resist the devil. And the word resist means to stand against with no middle ground or compromise. You don't put one foot over here and say, well, well, devil, I'm going to resist you in this area, but this area, devil doesn't know what you think. The devil does not, is not everywhere at one time. The devil can't make you do anything. You have the power to resist him because greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. You look in the Old Testament, Satan targeted Eve's mind in Genesis 3. You could be as equal with God. He targeted Job's body in Job 2. He targeted David's will in 1 Chronicles 21. He targeted the high priest Joshua's conscience in Zechariah 3. How do you stand? First of all, you flee temptation. If you know you're going to go to some place where you're tempted, you don't go there. Potiphar's house, Joseph fled when his wife, when Potiphar's wife kept trying to seduce him. He fled. You don't go in Baskin Robbins if you're trying to lose weight. <laughs> you visualize the consequences. Think about what am I about to do? What's going to happen if I do this? Hebrews eleven twenty four says, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy passing pleasure of sin. Think about it. Meditate on God's Word. Fill your mind with God's Word. In my Word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The third thing is to draw near to God. To toward, go toward Him. Seek fellowship with Him. When you take a step toward God, God's already taken a step toward you. Psalm 145.18, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. You see, Warren Wearsby said, when the Spirit of God convicts you, he uses the Word of God in love and seeks to bring you back into fellowship with your Father. 
When Satan accuses you, he uses your own sin in a hateful way and seeks to make you feel helpless and hopeless. Listen, God wants you to come to him. You don't have to beg, borrow, or steal. You, God wants you there. He loves you. He came after you. You turn from your sin. That's called cleanse your hands in verse 8. Repentance. It's outward sign. The outward sign that you have given your life to Christ is that you've said, I don't want to go this way anymore. I'm going to you, God. I'm coming to you. I'm drawing near to you. I'm turning. Repentance. Without repentance, there is no salvation. You hear me? You don't just pray a prayer. Dear Jesus, come into my heart. Now I'm saved. No. It's a commitment of your life. You draw near to God. You turn from your sin. You cleanse your hands. That was a, an outward sign in the Old Testament that was one of the rituals before you went into the temple. You washed the hands. It was part of the ritual required. Pilate washed his hands in front of the crowd that was convicting Jesus or, or wanting Jesus to be crucified. That's why Psalm 24, 3 says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart. Wash your hands. Clean your, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Now that word sinners is the word that's always used for lost people. Hardened sinners. Those whose hearts have not been changed. And then he says, and you double-minded it's, it's interesting. It means to have two souls to face both ways. I'm facing the world. I'm facing God. There's no such place. So many people today that think, you know what? I've, I got my fire insurance. I prayed for Jesus to come into my life. So it doesn't matter how I live. I'm under grace. I'm not under law. Well, you're right. You're not under law to be saved. But Jesus did not do away with the moral law. Kind of reminds me of a soldier. They were getting ready to go into battle, and he, facing the moment of truth, he turned to his close friend, and he said, Listen, Joe, if I don't make it back and you do, would you take this letter and see that Sally gets it? Tell her of my undying devotion, that my last thoughts were of her, and that her name was the last word on my lips. Joe said, I'll do it. He said, And here's one for Helen. Tell her the same thing. <laughs> That's how Christians are who say, I'm going to follow Jesus, and yet, no, I'm really not. Purify your hearts, verse 8. This is the inward purifying, an inward cleansing. There's a change that happens. Listen, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's a, Jesus changes your heart. That's why baptism doesn't save you. It's why joining a church doesn't save you. Only Jesus can do that for you. You probably remember Peanuts cartoon, Charlie Brown and Lucy. And Lucy would always hold that football. Charlie Brown's going to kick it. What did, he, what did she do every time? Every time. She moved the ball. Charlie Brown would move. He'd be on his back. Finally, Charlie Brown got enough of it. He began to scold her about what she had done. And before you know it, Lucy's crying. And she says, you know, you're right. I admit that in the past I played cruel tricks on you. But I've seen the error of my ways. I've seen the hurt in your eyes. Once you give this poor, repentant girl another chance, 
Charlie Brown said, okay. So he backed up, ran up to the ball, and just as he was about to kick it, she pulled the ball away. Once again, Charlie Brown ended up on his back, and here's what she said to a friend. Lucy said, unfortunately, recognizing your faults and actually changing your ways are two different things. That's so true. Without repentance, there's no change in your life. Number nine, verse nine says, grieve for your sin. Lament and mourn and weep. Lament describes an army that's run out of food and shelter. Oh, wretched man that I am, you bankrupt. Spiritually speaking, mourn means sincere grief, and weep means an outward manifestation. Do you grieve over your sin anymore? We don't. In fact, we think because we're under grace that God's gotten old and he kind of changed his mind about sin. He still hates it. There's an interesting article in the Houston Chronicle back in 1997 about the Titanic. For the longest, you know, it sank on April 12, 1912 on its maiden voyage, the unsinkable, they called it. And for many years, it was believed that there was a 300-foot gash in the side of, that's the length of a football field, by the way, 100 yards. They thought that the iceberg created a gash. Well, after they discovered the Titanic and in 1995, a group of scientists using robotics and those little subs and stuff, they studied and studied and come to find out that the total area of damage in the Titanic was 12 to 13 square feet, which is two sections of a sidewalk. But there were six punctures, just punctures, in six of the watertight compartments that sank the Titanic. Not a 100-yard-long gash. Well, folks, I want to tell you, tolerating sin in your life can sink you. It can cause all kinds of problems in your potential, in your purpose. It can create conflict in your relationships. And you contrast that with the way the world looks at sin, they laugh at it. They think it's so funny when they think people do things that are contrary to God. They laugh at it. They have a flippant attitude about it. It's not my sin's not that bad. The final part of that prescription is to remember who you are. To humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up, which gives hope to all of us. Because to lift you up means moral and spiritual elevation in the present life. You see, you remember who you are. You are a creature. You are a creation of God. You're not God. And you and I are so fortunate that God saved us. I'm going to tell you, the older I get, the more amazing His grace looks. Some of you are getting up in years. Are you getting afraid of dying? We fear the process. 
I've got good news for you. There's no fear to face God because your sins have been covered in Jesus Christ. And I don't have time to go elaborate on verses 11 and 12, but the proof of self-denying Christianity is the lack of criticism you have toward other people, especially other believers. Did you know criticism... To speak evil means to find fault, to gossip maliciously, to talk against, to slander. There's an old saying that blowing out the other fellow's candle won't make your shine any brighter. Two reasons not to. First of all, when you slander, criticize, gossip about a brother or sister in Christ, you are violating God's law that says love your neighbor as yourself. The second thing is you're making yourself God. You don't know the hearts of people. You don't know what's really going on in their life. Only God does that. Only God is omniscient and knows all things. And so you and I are just humble and thanking God that we're in his kingdom when we are his child, his, his children. Criticism of others is one of the worst expressions of human pride. And pride is what caused the fall of man to begin with. We're told a couple of things in the Scripture to guard. Guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But we're also told in Ephesians to guard the unity. Why do you think he put guard in there? Because it can be destroyed. And the day that we become self, so self-centered that we forget that, what God, that God is doing what he's doing here at Sacrest. Let me tell you something. We're, you're part of something special going on here. Because Lord has his hand on the place, and it's Jesus who's changing people's lives. It is. And we've got to keep remembering that. And when people come in here, we want them to meet Jesus. And you can meet him today if you don't know him as your Savior. You don't have to wait till you get your act together. <laughs> in fact, you can't put your act together. Only Jesus can do that for you. But you've got to turn from your sin and say, God, I admit to you, I thought all along I was going to save myself or I was already about halfway saved, but I admit I need you. Humble yourselves before the Lord. You ask God to forgive you of your sin because Jesus paid for it on the cross. And you commit your life. You ask the Lord, I submit my life to you, all of it. Your authority. I submit it to you. You can do that now. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would bring people to you. They're watching online. They're watching here. I pray you'd bring them to you. <laughs> uh, none of us deserve it. But I pray that you would show people that how much you love them how they need you and that you will forgive them and how trusting Jesus will change everything in their life. I pray for believers today who've been kissing the world. I pray, Lord, they turn their affection back toward you. I lift up those who need a church. What a blessing, what a blessing it is to be part of a fellowship of believers. 
So many excuses today where people won't be a part of one. But I thank you, Lord, that I get to meet with these people every week. I pray for those that need to be baptized. Four in this service, four in the next service. Lord, it's such a joy to see people unashamedly profess their faith in you. So, Lord, during this time of invitation, would you bring people to you? Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message.